Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. An award-winning screenwriter and film and television producer imagines a world where the Beatles never broke up. United Artists was getting the rights to The Lord of the Rings. And so uh, the Beatles still owed United Artists another movie. And uh, they also were considering Stanley Kubrick to direct such a movie. It would have been a movie that he would have done after 2001 in place of Clockwork Orange, for example. So I took all of that and said, well, what if, it, what if this arrow of history broke in the way that would allow that to have happened? And as it turns out, uh, this was confirmed in 2002 when the director of our Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, talked to Paul McCartney and McCartney said, oh yeah, we were trying to make that movie. Have you subscribed to my free monthly newsletter yet? The Inner Sanctum is jam-packed with news and information, and it's delivered free to your email inbox once a month. All you need to do is register your name and email address at my website, strangeplanet.ca. The Inner Sanctum contains a spotlight on previous guests from my weekly radio program and this podcast. There's my podcast pick of the month, a book club, a This Month in Conspiracy History section, and more. The Inner Sanctum is yours, absolutely free. Again, all you need to do is register at strangeplanet.ca. And once you've registered, your name automatically goes into a monthly draw for great Strange Planet gear from my Strange Planet shop. Register right now at strangeplanet.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday, the day before, the night before Christmas. And uh, let me take this opportunity to wish you all a very blessed Christmas and a happy Hanukkah. This Wednesday is uh, the big day, Christmas Day, and there will be an episode of Conspiracy Unlimited waiting for you to unwrap. So after you and yours have enjoyed a hearty Christmas breakfast, unwrapped a few presents, maybe some of you will be going to church, after all that... When you have a half an hour or so to yourself, you can come home and uh, listen to an episode of Conspiracy Unlimited just for you on Christmas Day. Now, this episode is a bit of a departure uh, because it deals with a work of fiction. But it is, it's a fascinating genre, alternate history. I like to call it what if, the what if genre. And if you believe in the idea of the, the multiverse theory, parallel universes and so forth, then you, I guess you have to hold out the possibility that the, the narrative laid out in Once There Was a Way, what if the Beatles stayed together, is possible. Somewhere in an alternate universe, John Lennon is still alive, George Harrison is still alive, they're all performing, not on this plane of existence, but somewhere. And as a, a huge Beatles, Beatles fan, like many of you, who was uh, devastated by John Lennon's murder and then later George Harrison's death, this book provides kind of a strange sense of comfort, resolution, closure. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm about three-quarters of the way through it and just enjoying it immensely. Bryce Zabel 
is a former CNN correspondent, now a Hollywood writer, producer, who's created five primetime TV series, written multiple produced feature films and TV miniseries. He was the first writer since Rod Serling, elected to serve as the CEO of the Television Academy that gives out the Emmys. Bryce is a winner himself of the Writers Guild Award for his screenwriting work, as well as multiple awards for investigative reporting for PBS. And together with his wife Jackie, he runs Stellar Productions. Bryce Zabel, how are you? I'm doing great, and it's uh, it's great to be on your show. It's it's uh, you got you have a great show. Um, and I have got many friends who love it and listen to it all the time. So thank you for having me on. I well, appreciate I appreciate it. it. I don't know if you're getting this reaction from people, but for those of us who felt cheated, how it was like getting punched in the stomach when John Lennon was murdered, we tend to gloss over the fact that a wife lost a husband and a son, oh. two sons lost a father. But then for the fans, which is kind of selfish, we felt cheated because that meant the Beatles would never get back together. So this book, it provides kind of in a strange, kind of a multiverse, parallel universe way, kind of a closure for us. Are you getting I, that I, reaction? I, I think you're touching on something that, that I've heard from a number of people uh, who, who, even for a few hours, they feel like they've had a chance to experience what it might be like. And, I, and, it, and for the, the people who feel that way, then I'm really gratified because that was the highest compliment anybody could, could pay to the book. I tried to be realistic i tried to not make it a time travel book it's not no. based on some crazy circumstance there's nobody going back in time to do anything it's just a telling of what might have been and um and i think that people uh, i think you're right people do want to uh, think about what what could have been because we know it can never be now at least not in our universe and i think it's very interesting also what you just said i'm sure uh, michio kaku could actually think well this could happen in in at least one of those universes out there in in these infinite universes so i like to think that uh, that it's just a fun way to look at things uh, it, because I, i'll tell you something i personally think that we all know who john paul george and ringo are as characters we've come to get their personalities because we've we've seen interviews with them we've seen movies we've seen you know all the stuff that has gone on about them we've internalized that we they have four very distinct personalities so what i tried to do is take those four personalities and basically give them a set of new adventures and, and uh, yeah. and 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 i think that uh, those new adventures make people think well that would have been nice and i i think that that's enough i think that's that's kind of a pleasant feeling and at the same time though i'm a dramatist so i tried not to make it silly and i tried not to make it crazy i tried to make it feel as realistic as i possibly could so i tried to draw on some of those skills that i've had as a journalist over the years and, and put those to work well what what you've also done masterfully is blended uh fact with fiction to the point where i had to ask myself wait a minute uh you know is it plausible that, that the, the Beatles may have uh, uh, appeared in, in, a, in Stanley Kubrick's production of Lord of the Rings? I mean, was that in the works? And we can talk about that later, but how were you able to research this, this book and sort of decide where, where fact would, uh, would sort of blend into fiction? I mean, I can't tell because I, I don't know all the ins and outs of the Beatles and their management teams and so forth. So well, I'll I tell you tell. one thing. I did put kind of a cheat sheet at the end of the book, uh, the sources of speculation, where I talk about things like the, the Lord of the Rings and the wood appearance, those kind of things, as to whether they could have happened or not, and what was really going on. So, yeah, uh, I get that reaction a whole lot from readers who, who say, I had to stop, and I kept reading to find out what was real and what wasn't. That's one way to read the book. The other is just to kind of surrender to the to the flow of it. Uh, but... Uh, 
how do, how do you do it? Well, that's interesting, and this may appeal to some of your uh, listeners. I, I sort of started doing this when I did a television series for NBC in the 90s called Dark Skies, which was mm-hmm. uh, about the UFO conspiracy, and, I, and my partner Brent Friedman and I tried to blend together the historical events of the 1960s that we know happened, only see them through the prism of UFO events. So we sort of gained some of those skills doing that. And then a few years ago, for the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, I wrote another one of these what I call breakpoint books, uh, which are these what-if books, and that one was called Surrounded by Enemies, What If Kennedy Survived Dallas? And uh, that's what basically got a book publisher to say, can you do another one, what would it be? And I said, well, the Beatles sound, sounds good, but one of the things that you do uh, is you read a lot. So, you know, for the Kennedy assassination, I already knew a lot about it, but... I read some 50 books on it. Same thing with the Beatles. I, I can't say I read 50 books, but I read within 50 books about them. Uh, watched a lot of stuff. And uh, then you, you sort of get to the place where you say, okay, I get what was going on with the Beatles at, at any particular time. But then you go back and you kind of make a timeline, if you will, of, what, of the time period. So for the Beatles book, uh, the, the, the really important years for this particular book, Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together, is what I call the years of maximum danger to the group, which would have been 1968 through 1975, I mean, right. uh, even in our timeline, obviously. And, and so I try to find the events of that period and blend them together. And if you think about it, what was going on? Well, the Vietnam War was winding down. Watergate was getting ready to happen. Nixon was in office. We did Woodstock. We had, you know, we just had a lot of things going on. And I just tried to look at at the Beatles through that prism. And another thing that uh, that I tried to do is to say, uh, I'm going to bend and twist history, but not in ways that, that are outrageous. So, for example, there's something that happens to John Lennon uh, later in the book that takes its inspiration from the Patty Hearst kidnapping of right. 1974. So right. it's not like uh, I just made something up that could never, ever happen in this universe or any other universe, but something that had happened but to another person. So I kind of tried to do it that way to keep it real and um, and you know constantly cross-reference things, went back, uh, did more research, and uh, I, I think the years I spent as a journalist really paid off because it's uh, it's a skill to kind of root through history and pull out stuff quickly, and, and that's what you have to do to write one of these books. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's kind of how I went at it. Someone else has mentioned this. I mean, it reads like a Rolling Stone history of the Beatles and right. how they stayed together. And, and as, you, as you mentioned, there's nothing in here uh, that you're sort of speculating or, or you know fantasizing could have happened that is not plausible. I mean, had the Beatles stayed together, they could have played Woodstock. But what I, one of those danger periods, obviously, and some say this is what really precipitated the breakup of the Beatles, was when Apple Records was formed, and then they were arguing right. who was going to represent them. And Paul wanted his in-laws, the Eastman, uh, uh, was it John Eastman? Right. And Lee Eastman. And, and, and Yes, exactly. John Eastman and his son. Right. And John wanted um, uh, Alan Klein, the Rolling Stones manager, uh, to come in and represent him. Uh, and now, did that, is that that part is true, right? Well, uh, it is true. Uh, I just let them resolve it differently. What happened yeah. in real life is, of course, uh, John hired Alan Klein and said to the others, uh, "You know, deal with it." Right. And uh, Paul said, "Well, I'd rather have my father, my soon-to-be father-in-law, uh, do do this." And then Ringo and George said, "Well, I guess we're going to go with John because we're not so sure that Paul should have his father-in-law to be uh, running the Beatles." So they kind of reached an impasse, and that 
literally, uh, although there were many, many causes, but that was literally the most fractious of yeah. all the causes, uh, I guess next to Yoko. Um, and, and so as a consequence, um, I looked at that as more of a problem. I'm, you know, we all have to get along occasionally. We have to compromise occasionally. Business deals get struck all the time. I asked myself, were there any pivot points where the Beatles could have seen things in a different way? And, uh, and, and they didn't have to be big changes. They had to be small things that added up to consequential uh, actions. In the Kennedy book, for example, the break point, that is that moment where history diverges, is fairly clean cut. I mean, he doesn't get killed, so history is often another tangent at that point. Right. With the Beatles, I chose to be a little more subtle and not to make it any one thing, but a, one thing that began to snowball into some other things. So that goes back to The Tonight Show, which seems like a pretty innocuous uh, breakpoint, if you will. Yes. But what happened in real life is that John and Paul ended up doing The Tonight Show with Joe Garagiola and Tallulah Bankhead, and it wasn't a great moment. I mean, they didn't have a good time, and when they got off the show, they went back to their hotel room, and then they promptly left New York. So in the book, um, I literally started with Lennon saying he's not going to go on the show if Johnny Carson isn't the host. And they tell him that there's going to be a guest host. And Carson, of course, doesn't take this very well, but Carson knows that a, a good guest is hard to find. So he literally was in New Jersey at the time doing some comedy stand-up show, uh, which, you know, if you had a choice between doing comedy stand-up in New Jersey or hanging out with the Beatles, I think you'd probably go back if, you, if, if push came to shove. So Carson comes back and does the show on one condition, and the condition is that Paul and John have to play a song and they have to do the whole show. And so they do. And what ends up happening, without spoiling everything, right. is that they have a really great time together, and yes. uh, and they learn one little one little thing about how to overcome difficulties in a friendship from Ed McMahon uh, of all people. <laughs> from Ed McMahon of all people. But again, as you point out, it's not that it's not outrageous. It could no. have happened because. All that was in play. I didn't make up that they were on the Tonight Show. They were. Yes. So uh, it's and from that little moment, you have a, a, a the arrow of history goes a little bit different, and it picks up some steam, and uh, they began to see just enough things in a slightly different way that they can they can sort of hang on by their fingernails long enough to make it work. Right. Just yeah. The mess. I guess the takeaway, Ed, was you know you don't always have to be friends. Just show up and be there just, for each other. Just show up. And in fact, one of the things. Uh, that, that your um, listeners might enjoy is we literally uh, follow that thread of showing up for each other um, as as a as a way to maintain a friendship, and they end up making a, writing a song about it called "Show Up," and we recorded a version of "Show Up" and uh, shot a music video of the Beatles recording show up in 1971 in George Harrison's garage at Friar Park right. where he lived. Right. Complete with a gnome and everything like he did and like he had on All Things Must Pass on the cover. That's amazing. And that's at morebeatles.com so oh. if people want to see that they can go there. Oh, I got I'm going to check that out. Well, thank you for It's kind of fun. That. I mean, you know, it, nobody can recreate, you know, I, I can't prove to you they're the, the Beatles, but I think you get the sense of it and and the kind of the fun of it and I've tried to create a lot of those kind of fun Easter egg moments. Uh, uh, we have a website called whatifbeatles.com, for example. And instead of it just being a website to promote the book, I've tried to thread in some of those ancillary pieces of material that kind of amplify what's in the book already to make it kind of fun to go back and forth and that kind of thing. Well, I don't want to get too uh, too far into the weeds, as they say, but I, w I do want to go back to one of the characters in uh, sure. that sort of really saves Apple Records and, and thus resolves... 
the sort of the management issues and sort of allows the Beatles to continue into the 70s. And that is, and I don't know if this is a real person or not, but he was the guy that fixed Britain's railroads, Lord Beecher. Yes. He comes in and and basically drives Ed McMahon's message home, which is, is you know, uh, just show up. Produce well, an album well, a year, and it's well. Again, a, a little bit of research goes a long way when you're writing these books. And one of the things that I I researched as much as I could was this whole management thing. Yes, we know from his history that it came down to Klein versus uh, the Eastmans, but there were other people that they considered, lots of other people, and one of them was Lord Beeching. Uh-huh. And Lord Beeching was the guy who, uh, like about. Um, six years earlier, had been put in charge of the campaign to keep Britain's railroads running on time. And let's face it, the Beatles uh, at at that time in the 68, 69, 70 period, uh, if Apple was to succeed as a business, needed to stop uh, throwing its money away. They were really not well managed, and they needed somebody to come in and be the tough love guy. Um, And it, it couldn't be Klein uh, by himself because he wasn't respected by Paul, and it couldn't be Eastman because he wasn't respected by John and to a lesser extent George and Ringo. So I kind of throw Beeching in there as the the tiebreaker, and uh, and I think it works very well. It, and it, and it, I'm not saying that it it uh, was the thing that should have happened or whatever, but it's something that could easily have happened, and it's one of those things that gave everybody a little bit of face uh, to. It, face saving. It, it it just provided uh, sort of a layer of separation um, that they didn't all have to go through the people they didn't like, but they had someone else to talk to, and they began to see Apple Records not as something that was a big waste of time and wasn't important because the Beatles were through anyway, but they began to see Apple Records as something that had some value and and was worth trying to save. And they began to see Apple Records as something that wasn't just the Beatles, but could not survive without the Beatles. And I think that was one of the keys that kind of unlocked things for them. And Apple Records also became kind of a, a, a jewel, uh, an, yes. a, a source of pride for, for well, Great Well, let's face it, it was supposed to be, and it might very well have been, because they were signing big acts. They were the guys that started James Taylor, for example. Right. Um, Apple was trying to make it as a, as a media giant as an, uh, certainly as a record company and the only thing that killed it is that the number one asset that apple records had although it had some assets but the number one asset it had of course was the beatles and if the beatles announced their breakup as they did in our timeline well that kind of put uh, a lot of stress on making apple sound like a, a really happening company um, and so i tried to find a few things that could get the Beatles through the very tough period that they were in from a friendship point of view. Things where they, as John, you know, John feel in the book feels coerced, but he goes along because he's told, because if he wants to keep Apple alive, he's got to play the game. Also, as you pointed out, it turned out that um, there was a real honest attempt to make uh, Lord of the Rings with the Beatles. That was my the, next question. Uh, yeah. In the late 60s, early 70s. So I embraced that. And let's face it, if you're spending all the money to have Stanley Kubrick direct the Beatles and the Lord of the Rings, the last thing you want as part of your promotional campaign is the Beatles breaking up. So it provided cover to keep them together, at least in the public mind, for a, a little while longer. And, and how... Uh 
well, talk to me a little bit about the um, the talk back then that the Beatles might actually appear in in a production of Lord of the Rings, okay. uh, directed I mean, by Stanley Kubrick. One that, uh, I, this is the one, by the way, Richard, that most people, when I, when I mention it, they're like, get out of here, that couldn't have happened. But in reality, uh, the Beatles had signed uh, their, you know, their films were produced by UA, United Artists. Mm-hmm. And in reality, United Artists was uh, getting the rights to the Lord of the Rings. And so uh, the Beatles still owed United Artists another movie. And... Uh, they also were considering Stanley Kubrick to direct such a movie. It would have been a movie that he would have done after um, 2001 in place of Clockwork Orange, for example, or before Clockwork right. Orange. So I took all of that and said, well, what if, it, what if this arrow of history broke in the way that would allow that to have happened? And as it turns out, uh, this was confirmed in 2002 when the director of our Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, uh, talked to Paul McCartney, and McCartney said, oh, yeah, we were trying to make that movie. It was John's idea originally. Uh, he was most taken by it. And I think what your listeners may find the most amusing part of it is, if you think about it, the parts kind of break down a little bit uh, in a way that you, you could understand. Paul would have been Frodo. Ringo would have been his right-hand man, Samwise Gamgee. I hope yes. I pronounced that yes. right. Yes, yes. And... Um, who do you think would have been Gandalf? It would have had to have been George, our spiritual right. beetle, right? right? And that makes John Gollum. <laughs> and, he, and that's what John wanted to do. He wanted to play Gollum. So, you, uh, so I just kind of ran with it. I just said, okay, that happens in this book. What would it have meant to the Beatles? Um, it wouldn't have been all uh, champagne and roses, though, I can tell you that. Um, uh, Kubrick was a difficult guy to work with, as we all know. John wasn't the easiest guy to work with himself. And they probably would have had some conflicts uh, trying to make a movie together. Uh, but sometimes a great movie can come out of conflicts. So that's kind of the direction I went with the whole thing. And the um, you've, you've changed some of the names of the albums. Uh, yes. In 68, the White Album became A Doll's House. Right. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, Let It Be became uh, Get Back, and Abbey Road became Savile Row. Abbey Road. No, became Abbey Sa- Road became uh, Everest. 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 Sorry, right. Yeah, right. Because okay. uh, and and you know, again, there's two audiences out there, I guess, for a book like this. Some of them don't know uh, much of the Beatles' history, so they're going to read this and go, "He changed the album, you know, titles for no good reason." But Beatles fans will recognize that I, what I did is I embraced the working titles of the albums that they actually were going to do and and just kind of ran with that just because I thought it would be fun and it would provide a distinctive feeling that this arrow, this break point, this arrow of history was not waiting to break in 1970 when when in our world they'd already broken up, but I let it start a little earlier. So again, the working title of the White Album was A Doll's House, so I stuck with that. Um, the working title of, uh, of Let It Be was Get Back. The working title of uh, Abbey Road was Everest. And so you've got these three albums um, already uh, in the Beatles catalog that we know that are a little bit different. Just not a lot, just a little bit different. And then the pace of change picks up after those albums, of course, because in our world, the Beatles all went on and produced a really fabulous amount of solo work in the 1970s. The early 1970s were just prolific. There was a lot of pent-up creativity among the Beatles. So I tried to reflect some of that energy and passion and musical uh, respect that they would have had to uh, keep for each other to get 
some new albums out there, and so there's a, a, a different chronology of albums. Most of it, but not all of it, most of it is composed of music that you might have heard uh, in, of course, the solo album. So in other words, in Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together, uh, certain songs like Ringo's Photograph, John's Imagine, Paul's Band on the Run, George's All Things Must Pass, things like that, instead of being solo works, become works that are part of this Beatles catalog that emerges in the 1970s. But my feeling is, if you're... if to to only merge solo albums together, then I'm just doing a glorified mixtape, which people have done right, exactly. uh, yes. on, on the Internet. Yes. And and I don't want people just to argue about my book as if it's a mixtape. I want them to read it and enjoy it and, and talk about it. And so, But I do think that it was sort of incumbent upon me not to just do a, a singular mixtape of solo work. So my feeling was... If the Beatles had actually stayed together in those in those early years of the seventies, they would you know life would have been different for them. And as a consequence of it being a little different, certain songs that we didn't have in our timeline would have emerged. And part of the fun and discovery that I think fans have had with the book is seeing how some of these other songs were created, such as "Show Up," the song that is at morebeatles.com. That came about because of something that didn't exist in our timeline but does exist in the alternate history timeline of this book and there's there's a number of others not not a lot but maybe maybe 10 total uh over the the run of the the book and i think it gives people a sense of fun and and I, I really enjoyed creating him, to be honest with you. Oh, and, and as I say, you've, you've just blended fact with fiction so well that it all just seems uh, so plausible. Uh, again, not knowing all of the Beatle lore, um, there's um, a chapter in here in which Hunter S. Thompson, uh, fresh off his Fear and Loathing yeah. in Las Vegas uh, tour, uh, drops by the Beatles while they're recording uh, at the record plant in Los Angeles and takes them to a political debate. Uh, now, I mean, obviously... Obviously, that's in 72, so the Beatles weren't together. But what was the inspiration there? Did Hunter Thompson ever meet the Beatles? You know, that one is, I think, a fever dream in my own <laughs> um, my own mind. But I'll tell you, the, the inspiration for it is Hunter Thompson, for real, in 1972, was trying to follow up his brilliant uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And he was a... A, you know, a columnist for Rolling Stone magazine, and he wrote in 1972, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. So I just thought, how much fun would it be to cross paths with the Beatles and Hunter Thompson? I do this with a number of historical characters in the book, Hunter Thompson being one of the more memorable ones. And the reason I wanted to do Hunter Thompson is when I was in journalism school back in the day, uh, Hunter Thompson was besides Woodward and Bernstein, which were the establishment characters that we were passionate about. Hunter Thompson was the alternate uh, journalist that we were passionate about. And I thought it would give me a chance to write about the Beatles in the style of Hunter Thompson. So I wrote a couple of extended sections in that chapter where it's Hunter Thompson telling the story of his one night with the Beatles uh, in 1972. And what ends up happening, of course, is that... uh, he, he sees them on the the day of the California primary, which was a a very important moment in in political history in our timeline because the entire nomination for the Democrats came down to that day, and uh, of course Thompson is doing his usual um, 
uh, well, you know, we, we know what Thompson would be doing. Oh, yes. And he drags the Beatles into some of this, and they have adventures. And it's kind of fun, and um, and it, it, it was so much fun, I just thought, well, that's part of the joy of writing an alternate history. If you're going to create new adventures for the Beatles, I thought, let's really create some new adventures for the Beatles. Since it's, it's not real, I'm not arguing it was real, I'm just saying, wouldn't it have been fun? So I thought, let's drag some of the real characters of history into this, like Hunter Thompson, Richard Nixon, John Dean even. What about, uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt has a role oh, in this. Oh, yes, I gotta Scott. talk to so you about that. There's all kinds of things in the book that are kind of food for thought on that, on that kind of area. More of my conversation with screenwriter Bryce Zabel when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Get on up to GetTheTea.com. There are some great holiday specials happening right now. The Holiday Special Flavor Pack includes one pack of Life Change Super Tea Cleansing Tea, one pack of Formula 13 Peppermint Cleansing Tea, and one pack of Life Change Super Tea Pomegranate Tea. Again, this special includes one package each of Get The Tea's three cleansing teas. And normally, you'd pay the regular price of $105. But right now, the Super Flavor Pack is on for just $70. I drink the Formula 13 Herbal Teas every single morning without fail. And they leave me feeling refreshed, clear-headed, and more energy than many people I know who are half my age. Start feeling rejuvenated right now. This tea is specially formulated to help cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood all at once. Order now at GetTheTea.com. And don't forget, use the code UNLIMITED on all your orders, and you won't pay for shipping. It's time to get the tea at GetTheTea.com. Another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was what, what a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Uh, we are here with Bryce Zabel. Once there was a way... This is a, a breakpoint novel, the second in a series of sort of what-if uh, novels. What if the Beatles stayed together? Uh, and yeah, what, what's the third one going to be? Do you know? You know, I get asked that a lot now, and if I knew, I would tell you instantly. I, I think I set a kind of a high bar for myself that I haven't figured out how to overcome, because... JFK is about, I, I realize that a lot of your uh, listeners are in Canada, of course, but they're all over the United States as well. And, you know, JFK is about one of the most iconic things, and then the Beatles are obviously iconic. So I've hit, you know, it's a pretty high bar. And the other thing I wanted, want to do with these books is I don't, I, I, the what if I've seen before is what if the Nazis won World War II? What if the South won the Civil War in the United States? And I don't want to do those. Right. I mean, those Robert Harris not, actually did I them. want to do things that people just haven't thought of doing. And I think yeah. the Beatles, uh, while people have speculated about it, um, I don't think there's been too many books that attempt to realistically dig into it. So I'm looking around in, um, in my mind and in, in, uh, in history to find something that will do justice to the first two. You if mentioned you have a great idea, Richard. Let me know. Okay. You mentioned that, you know, what if the Nazis had won the war? I think uh, Robert Harris, I think, did, did something like well, that. Well, he about... did Fatherland, and of yes, course, that's it. on Amazon right now, you have uh, the, the very wonderful um, Man in the High Castle. Right, right. So it's, it's those a, it's two a... get done, but, yeah. but again, uh, it's harder to put a spin on this fresh and original, and I, I think uh, what 
what the readers so far seem to like about Once There Was a Way is is the idea that it um, it spins it in a realistic way, and we still have Paul performing right now. So it's not impossible to read this book and spend some time and think, wow, that would have been really nice mm. if, uh, if it could have worked out this way. And, uh, and I think that that is why uh, so many people seem to be uh, enjoying it. I had someone leave a, a, a note the other day uh, for me on uh, it was Facebook or Twitter. I, I don't remember where at this point, but just saying that they had just finished it and they didn't want it to end because they had enjoyed this vacation in their mind to this you know, we live in a time where Trump is president and people are, you know, fighting with each other and there's a lot of disharmony in the world. And they enjoyed taking a little while to just park their brain in a space where they could imagine all the great music the Beatles might have made had they not broken up. Exactly. There is also the, um, of course, the, the FBI and Nixon's war sure. on, on John Lennon, which was real. We know about the FBI files on John Lennon, and uh, he was he was rightfully paranoid. I mean, uh, even when he came up uh, here to Canada, I believe, and visited with uh, Rompin Ronnie Hawkins and stayed at his place in Peterborough, not too far from here, um, he believed that he was being... Uh, monitored and so forth. Well, and, and remember, uh, Toronto is very important uh, for John. Yes. Uh, in our timeline, he went up to Toronto and, and played uh, a concert there, sort of his first break from the Beatles. And That's it right. gave him the confidence to come back and break up. Now, here's a. I, I've mentioned this before in the show, and this comes to me by way of um, uh, my, my good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, who was a protege of Marshall McLuhan. And I don't know if you know about the meeting when. when uh, John Lennon was up here, uh, and he played at Varsity Stadium with the Plastic Ono Band. He actually right. met Marshall McLuhan. And the uh, the story goes that they had a lengthy conversation, and McLuhan, sort of, who was a conspiracy theorist, I mean, he talked about secret societies and how the arts are controlled by secret societies and so forth, and he told Lennon, in no uncertain terms, that you are a useful fool, uh, and that you are being used by, you know, the... Um, the establishment to, uh, you know, to brainwash the youth and, and make sex, drugs, and rock and roll all sort of you know, palatable and so forth and put Americans to sleep and distract from the Vietnam War and all of that. And Lenin was so enraged that he stormed out, then came back and, and actually calmed down and, and sort of conceded the points. Uh, and some wonder whether that may have sort of changed the trajectory of, of Lenin's... Well, he was pretty political, obviously, before he, he, that. He was... I, yeah. I, I think John was an active enough mind that he he can't reject something from someone that interesting out of hand, mm. and, and I think he, he thought a lot about it, and, and I think John always had the theory that to that his celebrity was something that could be parlayed into a sense of good, and, and uh, I, I think that's really what I've tried to do with the book only with an added little spin, which is John became a very controversial political character in our timeline and alienated uh, the Nixon administration, which sicked both the FBI and the INS on him. So my feeling was if Lennon had stayed with the Beatles, uh, that very, uh, he would have sucked the Beatles into that right. orbit of uh, of paranoia as well, and so I've I dealt with some time with that. I also wanted to just say, in regards to your show and and uh, and Lennon, he also saw a UFO in 1974, That's which is right. kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, and and was outspoken about it. So I I think John uh, 
would have been well, one of the things I like about the book is that John doesn't have to die as a consequence of this book and, and continues to be a social, political, and musical force uh, for many years to come. And wouldn't that have been glorious? I mean, we could have used John Lennon today commenting on our on, on what's going on in our world. Right. You, you, that's an interesting decision that in the, in the book Lennon lives and Harrison does pass away, as he did in 2001, and is replaced by. Uh, well, I don't want to give too much well, away. Well, you know, in fact, let me just let me because that does. I think people do have questions about that. I, I, what I decided to do in this thing to keep it real is not to be in charge of whether somebody gets cancer or not. So. If Harrison died in the time period that he did, then he'd still died because of that, because I don't get to wave a magic wand right. over his health. Right. But with Lennon, I believe that had the Beatles stayed together, it's very possible that they would have looked at security in a slightly different way. And I have something happen uh, early on that causes them to do just that. And John Lennon didn't have to be let out in front of the Dakota and sign autographs. There is a way into the Dakota that you can drive in underneath it. So I just kept Lennon alive because he paid more attention to the security advice he was getting. Right, that's kind of the butterfly effect. But the butterfly effect isn't necessarily going to prevent someone from getting cancer. No, that's kind of what I thought. I want to just dial back a little bit because sure. there's another interesting moment, so many of them. but And this actually did happen, of course. Uh, Elvis Presley went to uh, the Nixon White House in the early 70s and was given an honorary DEA badge. And I think he in his, he was a little delusioned and thought that he actually was working undercover with the DEA, but it was an honorary thing. Um, but the idea that, that Elvis Presley sort of ratted out the Beatles and said, you know, and, you know, the Beatles were th- thrilled to have met Elvis in 1964. Right. Did Elvis actually rat them out to Nixon and said, these guys, you, you should look at them, they're un-American? Well, he never in our time ratted out the entire Beatles, but um, he he wasn't a big fan. Uh, he He thought that they were, particularly of John, I think he thought was, John was a drug-taking, you know, politically raving kind of guy and so i just kind of ran with that um i I, I, the beatles did enjoy meeting elvis at the time but as time went on elvis changed and so did the beatles and so i i but again keeping in line with the idea that i wanted to have some of these wonderful cameos elvis happens to be one of the best musical cameos you can put into a book like (laughs) oh yeah i thought it might be fun and we do know as you pointed out that elvis and nixon uh had met and in in this uh, alternate history that I've written, the Beatles are very much uh, pulled into the Nixon web of of entrapment, and uh, so it, there'd be no question that El- Elvis saw himself on Nixon's side of that one. Right, right. Hey, by the way, I just wanted—I'm getting some email here from people saying, "Where is it? I'm supposed to look for some of the? Can I just run these URLs very quickly for the yes, people please. who are listening yes, who want to know Go where, ahead. The, where they are?" Absolutely. Yes. Okay, so here's the deal. The main one is whatifbeatles.com. That's where you can find all these Easter eggs and all that, and that's where you can find uh, your local bookstore that might sell it to you. Then we have one called amazonbeatles.com, which you can go straight to Amazon. they got the best prices. And then the video is morebeatles.com. So what if Beatles, Amazon Beatles, more Beatles. And I, I, I can't wait after the show to check out the, um, I hope you like the, the music video of the, the Beatles performing at uh, Harrison's home, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this song, uh, Show Up. We uh, had such a fun time writing it. The author of the, or the, the, uh, the composer of the music, Brian Brindleson, uh, w- was a, a 
just a nut for detail in a good way. He made sure that we had the right equipment, the exact equipment that Paul used and John used, and the same drum set that Ringo used, that kind of thing. So it was really fun to put it together because you felt like for a moment you were sitting in George's garage, and that's kind of fun. Right, right. Uh, and did you actually shoot it at, at Friar Park? Did you say? No, no. God knows. I, I, I wish I could. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We shot it here in uh, Southern California. But interestingly enough, I found uh, uh, someone, Casey Staples, is a person in the area who maintains a recording studio in his garage, and it's full of 70s vintage recording material. So we not only have the vintage um, instruments that the Beatles actually used, but we also have the recording uh, equipment and the microphones, the same exact microphones, all that stuff. So it's, you know, independent of the song and everything else, it's kind of fun just to take the time travel machine back and, and take a look at that. Let me dial it back again to, to 1969, and, and the, sure. the, the you have the Beatles performing at Woodstock. How right. likely was that? Was there an invite? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it, the, the one of the great things that you talk, we started this show and we'll, I guess we'll circle back talking about the research. One of the things you learn about the research is that a lot of things happened in 1969 in that summer. John Lennon got in a car wreck. Uh, the Beatles uh, were putting together the Abbey Road album, and uh, and Woodstock was happening, and all in a very compressed period of time. So, yes, they were invited. They didn't go because, frankly, Lennon had been in that wreck just shortly before that, and also they just didn't have plans, and they just were at that place in their professional career where it didn't make sense. Uh, they didn't want to put the energy into it. But... Uh, I'm able, because of the show-up thing, to let that arrow of history break in a way that allows McCartney to say to, to Lennon, uh, we got invited to uh, you know, play at this Woodstock thing. What do you think? And they end up doing it. Um, and it is a, it, it's a very dangerous place to play, not because people didn't like them, but because they liked them too much. And uh, the fans literally, it was almost like Beatlemania down the road. And it, it allowed them to be very scared that they might not make it out of Woodstock alive, if you will. And that's one of the reasons why Lennon survives through 1980 and beyond, because after that event, uh, all of them thought we better pay a little more attention in the future to the security situation wherever we go. Uh, in, in uh, you know, on, on this plane of existence, um, McCartney, who I love, I mean, is, is, is the the um, the volume of work is just uh, out of this world, and he continues to be relevant well into his seventies. But it, truth be told, to me, to me at least, he sort of he he makes himself out to be sort of uh, the peacemaker and a little bit of the martyr. Right. Um, what do you? And, and I think that comes through a little bit in the book too. What do you? What do you think? Uh, well, I'll tell you something. I will say this about the book. What I get over and over is how much people love Ringo in the book. Mm. Because Ringo's, I sort of channeled Ringo's voice, and Ringo's the guy that realizes I'm not in charge of the group, and they're not asking my opinion, really. So I'll just go, you know, I'll play if they want me to play, and if they don't want me to play, I won't play. Uh, McCartney and Lennon, I tried to follow what I divine to be their respective positions about this and you're right john is john comes across a little more sour on occasion in the book because he was usually not into it and if he did go along with it he would go along often complaining about it and mccartney clearly was the guy that was more pro keeping the beatles together and uh none of that's made up that's sort of the way that it actually was uh between the two of them uh, I tried to keep it real between the two of them. Um, I, I, 
I didn't mask over the idea that they had a lot of serious issues with each other. What I tried to do instead was to say, is there a way that you can continue to play with someone who you have serious issues with? And I think that history tells us there is a way. I mean, look, the Rolling Stones are still playing together right mm. now. I yes. mean, think about that. And this is one thought I love to put out there. Uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles are two groups that were contemporaries of each other, literally contemporaries. And the Rolling Stones have been playing for 50-plus years, and they're playing right now. So uh, the idea that the Beatles might have hung together is not so outrageous after all. Uh, you were mentioning uh, Lennon's UFO sighting uh, yeah. on the Hudson when he lived in the, the village uh, with May Pang. This was before the Dakota. Uh, I guess he had moved out of the Dakota or he hadn't bought the Dakota yet. I can't remember. Uh, they, at, at the time of his sighting, they, well, let's, um, I, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't, I don't think they had it. You no, know, they did. I think they did have the Dakota by that point. But I think, yeah, I think this was a, one of those little uh, periods when he was living but away. He, he had been in uh, yeah. Los Angeles, yes. and he had come back, and Yoko had refused to take him back even then. That's so right. he was still staying with May Pang in, in New York at that time. That's right. And I interviewed May Pang, and we talked about that uh, that that sighting, and, and he it's actually mentioned on his 74 album, Walls and Bridges, that he saw this thing. Uh, that's right, and also in Strange Days. That's right. There's UFOs over New York, and I'm not too surprised. Yes. The other thing that, that uh, May Pang mentioned uh, is that uh, at the time Paul McCartney was going down to, I think it was either Kansas City or New Orleans, to do some recording. Right. And uh, uh, Lennon asked May Pang, uh, should I go down and meet him? And she said, yes. Uh, and then, and he was ready to pack his bags and go. And this was in mid the mid-70s, 75, right. maybe, 76. Uh, that could have... That that would have been another, I mean, honestly, I, I could have chosen that as the break point. I could have started the book there, that they get back together. Uh, that would have been another way to do it. I mean, I just wanted to bring in those wonderful stories from 68, 69, 70, 71, yeah. that kind of thing. But absolutely, and by the way, the reason that Lennon did not go down to hang out with McCartney is Yoko brought him back into her life. Mm. And so he was literally... I think, about to get on a plane and go down there, and then Yoko said, uh, Ollie Ollie Income Free, and he decided uh, to, he had two great partners in his life, Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono, and he, he went with Yoko. There you go. See, there's the butterfly effect. Maybe That's you know right. Yoko didn't reach John in time. He went down, got on that plane, and yep. things could have been different. And that's I mean, why. This is a fascinating game, as oh, you can see, and you is. can play it in any number of ways. I guess the thing that I have learned, having written two of these books and done a television series about it, is there's no perfect place to jump in. Hmm. You just sort of jump in and then commit to it. The, the, the number one thing to make a what-if book work is to commit to your premise yes. and not to waffle on it. So that's kind of what I've tried to do. Oh, and you did it uh, masterfully, I have to tell you. Uh, plans in the works to turn this into a TV series? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't control that, of course. I'm not the god of television down here, but there's more television being made uh, now than any time in history. So that is kind of one of the, as I sort of wrap up, uh, or, or, or ramp up, if you will, the book, uh, 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 marketing point of view, uh, it seems to have taken off and, and solidified its position. And now what I want to do is I want to take the success of the Kennedy and the, the, uh, Beatles books. And, uh, I do have strong plans. They were both written, by the way, to become a season of a television series. So, just uh, the premise would be that Breakpoint is the series name, and in the same way that, say, um, 
American Horror Story has different stories each season. Right. Um, one season could be the Beatles. The next season could be JFK. The next season could be something else. And each season would be uh, roughly ten episodes. So you'll notice in the both the Surrounded by Enemies book about JFK and the Once There Was a Way about the Beatles, each has a chapter structure roughly of ten chapters. So the idea would be they would be the Bible for the writers' room to convert them into television episodes. Brilliant. Here, just uh, just going to float another idea uh, for for the third installment of Breakpoint. What if I can't the, wait. What if the Leafs won the Stanley Cup? <laughs> Listen, why not? <laughs> I mean, I mean, if if nothing else. You can see how this is the greatest parlor game that you can imagine. It's just fun to sit around and kick through this stuff around. Well, I can't recommend this um, highly enough. Uh, for Beatle fans and non-Beatle fans alike, once there was a way, give us the websites again for all those okay. wonderful Easter eggs. Uh, three uh, websites. The main one is whatifbeatles.com. Uh, you can get it cheapest at Amazon currently online, amazonbeatles.com. And if you want to see the music video that we've been talking about, it's at morebeatles.com Bryce, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for hanging it's out. It's been my pleasure, Richard, and, and thank you, and, and thanks to all your fans. Okay, now, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to fill you in on what's in store on an upcoming episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you want to support my work here at Strange Planet, please consider becoming an official donor. It's easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several donation tiers to choose from, from a dollar per month to $50 a month. For the month of December, new donors at the 10, 20, and $50 per month tier receive a free mug from my strange planet shop. Donors in the $20 tier also have their names appear on a crawl during the YouTube live stream of my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And donors in the $50 tier receive a special on-air thank you on my radio program. Whatever you give, your support helps keep my radio program and this podcast going. Help me pursue the truth wherever it leads. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Thank you and God bless. Coming up on Christmas Day, best-selling author Jonathan Kahn reveals the actual date of Christ's birth. The reason why he would not have been born on December 25th is because, you know, if you go to Israel today, just as it was then, it is cold, it is, it is the coldest season, it is the winter, it is, it is rainy or snowing at times, daunting. Forget about a pregnant woman traveling. I mean, even traveling under the best circumstances, you know. And then the idea of the shepherds being out, I mean, they're... The one season they're definitely not going to be out is going to be winter. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.